How is it that smart, discerning people fall into a belief system and, and get lost in it, and then once there, how do they get out? Hello, everyone. I'm Abby Wright. I'm Lisa Cohen. Coming to you from the Journalism School at Columbia, home of the Alfred I. DuPont Columbia University Awards and many other prestigious journalism prizes. Welcome to our second episode of On Assignment. Yay, Woo! second episode. We live to tell the tale. Every two weeks, we bring you a conversation that we've had with some of the remarkable journalists who come up to the J School. They share their insights with their students while on assignment. And now, we're passing it all along to you. You're in for a treat today. We have a really riveting behind-the-scenes discussion with Oscar Award-winning director Alex Gibney about his film, Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief, which happened after a Film Friday screening at Columbia last year. And it is such a phenomenal film. Yes, it was so phenomenal that we actually just gave him a 2016 DuPont Award for it. It's gorgeously shot and edited. It's incredibly substantive. It takes on a really tough subject, the Church of Scientology. And uh, it's one of the many, many, many Alex Gibney projects we've seen over the years. He's truly prolific. He is prolific, and he is ubiquitous. We're having trouble keeping up with his many projects, but off the top of our heads, he has a new food series on Netflix with Michael Pollan. I just watched a little bit of it last night called Cooked, and a joint project with The New Yorker streaming on Amazon Prime now, uh, The New Yorker Presents, as well as a biopic of Janis Joplin that's coming out soon. So in the past, his credits and the list of topics he's covered over three decades, it's just a mile long. I'll, I'll give you a brief run through. He won an Oscar for Taxi to the Dark Side in 2008. He's done films about Jack Abramoff, Lance Armstrong, James Brown, the Bush administration's torture policies, the Catholic Church sex scandal, Nigerian music legend Fela Kuti, and then there's Elliot Spitzer, there's Hunter Thompson, he did WikiLeaks, Frank Sinatra, Steve Jobs, the list just goes on and on. So in Going Clear, Alex delves into the corruption and the secrets of this organization, and in order to show us the cracks in their foundation, he does a number of interviews with ex-Scientologists, some of whom are fairly prominent, like Oscar-winning director and screenwriter Paul Haggis. You're also going to hear the names of Scientology heads like David Miscavige and the former spokesperson Tommy Davis, as well as Marty Rathbun, who's the former second-in-command. In addition to having such star power associated with it, stars like Tom Cruise and John Travolta, the church is also a real force to be reckoned with. So needless to say, doing a film about the Church of Scientology is an incredibly sensitive topic. In the film and in our conversation, Alex talks about how litigious they are, and it's actually a central point in the film itself. In fact, HBO documentary head Sheila Nevins made an apocryphal comment in the press before the film came out about how it took them almost 160 lawyers vetting the film to get it on the air. Yes, and you'll hear Alex set us straight on that in this conversation. We've also sprinkled in a couple of clips from the film to give you a little flavor for it. For more information about Alex and his many projects, go to our website, onassignmentpodcast.org. Now let's go on assignment with Alex Gibney and our own Fred-friendly professor, Betsy West. Thank you so much, Alex, for coming to Columbia Journalism School and for this great film. Let's start from the beginning. When and how did you decide to take on uh, Scientology? Oddly enough, I had been offered 
<laughs> That's a good thing. The Scientology story a number of times and, and, and decided not to do it for a, a number of times because the danger level was high. But my friend Larry Wright, um, Lawrence Wright, who wrote, won a Pulitzer Prize for his wonderful book, The Looming Tower, he and I had worked together before on a, on a film called My Trip to Al-Qaeda, which was his first per, a one-man play about his writing of The Looming Tower. He sent me this book, the book on which this film is based in galleys, and I was very impressed by it, uh, particularly by this idea, The Prison of Belief, which was not just you know the wacky stuff that South Park has done about Scientology, but how is it that smart, discerning people fall into a belief system like this and, and, and get lost in it, and then once there, how do they get out? And that seemed to me a very powerful and important idea that was both true for Scientology, but also resonated far beyond it. So I thought, okay, let's, let's dig in. I seem to be motivated by stories about abuses of power, but I don't, you know, except in rare situations where sometimes people ask me to, to go after a theme, and even then I, I try to search for a story um, that carries that theme. It's usually the story that, that, that motivates me. You know, we've been doing a lot of talking here at the journalism school lately about journalistic practice and about verifying sources. So I'm wondering how it works when you are working with another journalist like Larry Wright. Obviously, he's won Pulitzer Prizes. But to what extent do you, as a documentarian, re-report the story? We do it, but not completely. I mean, there is a certain amount of trust in Larry. And we had access not only to his book, but also the fact-checking back and forth uh, that was done at The New Yorker and then also as part of the book. So when we were concerned about a particular area, we'd see the correspondence back and forth. And also, <coughs> you know, one check and balance for us, particularly with Scientology, was that we not only had to communicate a story that we felt told a powerful tale, but also we, <laughs> we had to convince our lawyers and uh, HBO's lawyers, there weren't 160, it was far fewer than that. That was <laughs> what in journalism is called a fact too good to check. But um, the, you know, that, that this would not be actionable. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of that. But you know, there was also a certain amount of trust. Mm -hmm. Talk about the lawyering a little bit. Was it going on throughout the entire process? It didn't go on throughout the entire process. But I'd like to say that the law is the law, and, um, and you're judged accordingly. But particularly when you're making a film, in order to get it distributed or released, you have to have an insurance policy in place, an errors and omissions insurance policy. Uh, and very often, insurers won't insure you for some things, not because you're right according to the law, but because there is a prior history of litigation. It's a kind of business calculation that they do. It's a risk-reward calculation, not a legal calculation. And when it came to the Church of Scientology, Scientology had sued Time Magazine 25 years ago. And it had been 25 years ago. Hadn't sued anybody since. But that was the most expensive uh, media litigation, I believe, in maybe in history. And it was about $25 million the Church of Scientology spent on lawyers and private eyes. And Time Magazine spent a lot of time and went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And Scientology lost at every stage. But nevertheless, the amount of money spent by Time Magazine terrified others. So that even when we were trying to license footage for this film, 
all of the major networks refused, per their legal departments, to license us materials having to do with Scientology. And I suspect the reason was not so much about the law, or it was about risk and reward. So the lawyers were engaged in that context, and also having done that, we did some things on this film that maybe we wouldn't have done in a different kind of a context, um, knowing that Scientology was almost certainly going to threaten to sue, and sometimes if an organization threatens to sue you, you have to disclose that to your insurer when you go get the policy, and as a result, you may not get the policy. So you have to be very cautious. At the same time, at the other end, you know, once we had the policy, we, we also were assiduous about reaching out to them and trying to get them to go on the record, which they didn't do. <coughs> the Church of Scientology tried to play, I'm sure you've discussed it here, but the Rolling Stone story is very much in the news, and, the, and Steve Cole's report on it is very much in the news, and they lambasted me in saying, this is UVA Redux. In fact, they took out a full-page ad in the New York Times and the LA Times with my picture on it. Surprisingly, not that bad a picture. Um, <laughs> Last year, yeah. yeah. And, and they were trying to impugn our journalistic standards because at some point, you know, close to the premiere of the film at the Sundance Film Festival, they said, we have 25 people and we're sending them to New York and you have an obligation to meet with them. In some ways, you could argue, well, you should meet with them. But this was so clearly a stunt that it, and, and it was so clearly a mechanism by which they were trying to score points that, that we didn't do it. And because they never responded to the people that I wanted to talk to. It's a little bit like you say, you go to an organization, you say, I want to talk to the following people. And they say, well, how about our janitor from Belarus? You know, he's good. <laughs> you say, well, thank you very much for your generous <laughs> offer, but I don't think I'm going to go there. So, in fact, when I, when I had my exchange with Tom Cruise's publicist, they would send me sometimes six-page emails, mostly quotes from the New York Times, Columbia School of Journalism, <laughs> lists of journalistic ethics and how I was breaching those by not talking to these 25 people. Were you nervous about it? Were you worried about it? About what? I don't know, them suing or, you know? Well, we were nervous and yeah. cautious about them suing, and, and we tried very hard with our lawyers to to look at it from every possible angle. Mm -hmm. And we concluded that we were probably in pretty good shape, but we didn't know until the, the film was broadcast exactly what it would be. And we thought they might sue us on two accounts. One is the film contains a, a tremendous amount of footage that is owned by the Church of Scientology. Uh, and we included it via the doctrine of fair use, but we were very assiduous about how we included it. And so we thought they might sue us there probably because if they sued us there, they wouldn't be subject to discovery. We didn't think they'd sue us for libel because if they did, they would be subject to discovery and we could depose Tom Cruise, David Miscavige, Tommy Davis, and so forth and so on. And this gets back to, since it's a journalism school, one of the things that, that we had to discuss um, was backup you know, to certain statements that were made, and even though they're not made by us, they're made by individuals in the film, was it reasonable for, th for us to think that what they were saying could be true? Because one of the things they judge you on under the law is, did you make a mistake? And if so, 
did you make that mistake with reckless disregard for the truth? Did you know it to be false and you proceeded anyway? And in many cases, we had a long line of people who were ready, willing, and able to testify in court even though they felt they couldn't appear in the film because they were tied up by NDAs that the church forced mm-hmm. them to sign. Non-disclosure agreements, right. yeah. And the archive is extraordinary, amazing. Uh, how did you, how long did that take to track down and where did you, can you give us a story or two of where you found some of these? You know, I can't say specifically, but I, it took us a long time to track down and we got it from all sorts of different places, from individuals, from the, from the web rather easily, from the dark portion of the Russian internet, you know, and, and various <laughs> other places. When you're searching for archive, it's pretty much shoe leather work. And it's just going after person after person after person who might have something and then you keep trolling for stuff. One of the things in terms of doing a story about Scientology is that you have a lot of motivated people in the form of ex-Scientologists who very badly wanted this story to come out. In fact, you know, since the story has come out, I've been approached at screenings by a lot of ex-Scientologists, some of whom were in the Sea Org and so forth and so on. We're very grateful, saying finally this story can be told. An auditor is a practitioner in Scientology. He listens and he computes. We will begin the session now. You will remain aware of everything that goes on. Okay. We're going to find an incident in your life you have an exact record of. Then by sending you through it at the time it happened, we're going to reduce it. We will reduce the pain. Go to the beginning of that incident. Tell me what's happening. Well, you, you recently compared auditing to interviewing. I just thought that the journalism students might find that an interesting comparison. What did you learn about interviewing from auditing? Well, auditing, I mean, if you take the e-meter away, and the e-meter is a bit of a, a phony thing that Hubbard put in to make it more science. But auditing is really a little bit like therapy. And Marty Rathbun, who uh, Jason Begay calls the Wayne Gretzky, Michael Jordan of auditors. What makes him so great? What makes him so great is he is tremendously empathetic. And that is to say he brings, he gives people confidence to tell their stories. And to me, that's what a good interviewer does. I mean, it depends on the circumstance. If you have a live interview on... 60 Minutes or Meet the Press, and you're trying to confront a public official in real time, it's different. It's a kind of a combative thing. In, for the kinds of films that I do, I'm more in the zone of Marty Rathbun. My job is to be empathetic, to try to give that person confidence, to make them believe in themselves, to tell me the story that they want me to hear. And sometimes that means not challenging them and not showing them how smart I am or might be or how much I know, but to just to give, just to allow them to tell their tale and, and to convince them that, I, that they can trust me mm-hmm. um, with their testimony, that I won't take advantage of it. And if they, you know, say something by accident or in some kind of misstep, that I'm not going to jump on it. Um, so it's a different kind of a process than a sort of a traditional in-your-face did you commit sex abuse, yes or no? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, that's how I think it's similar to the auditing process. When you audit somebody, you're there trying to elicit 
memories from that person or to elicit a sense of their past problems. And people, as, as some of the people in the film talk about, they were related after these auditing sessions, much as Freud talks about the talking cure, because suddenly you get these festering problems off your chest mm -hmm. and you just feel so much better. And a good auditor is somebody who's empathetic and brings people out of themselves. You mentioned the ad that they took out about you. What else has been their response to some of these people to you in the wake of the film? You know, the they, they have a, a website called freedommag.org, which is their online website of the Freedom Magazine, which is a Scientology magazine. And most of what they do is to try to smear people. I found it very interesting that Hollywood Reporter presented them with 25 questions, fact-based questions relating to material in the film. They didn't answer any of them. They just said, the people involved with this film are terrible, they're assholes, uh, they can't be trusted, they're liars, um, and they point people to, to these websites. And in many cases, you know, they talk about um, awful things that these people have done as a way of impugning their credibility. What they don't often say is, for example, Spanky Taylor would be a good example. They say she was involved in this terribly nefarious organization called a Cult Awareness Network, which was so shoddily run that it went bankrupt. What the church doesn't say is that the Cult Awareness Network, which was a group that was designed to uh, help people who were in cults, uh, was sued into oblivion by the Church of Scientology. <laughs> Once it was sued into oblivion by the Church of Scientology, the Church of Scientology bought their name. And so if you were a person who was trying to get a relative out of the cult of Scientology, you would go to the Cult Awareness Network and you'd be going right to Scientology. Scientology. Do you have any way of knowing how many people might be reconsidering their relationship with Scientology now in the wake of this film? It's hard to know. I mean, I, 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 I think one of the things that the film indicates is that it often takes a very brutal wake-up call, something shocking, to, to make people shatter that belief system. I happen to know, I, I have in my own family a, a relative by marriage who is in the church and um, she still hasn't seen the film and is not even aware of the film because Scientologists are trained not to be aware of things that are critical of the church. And that's a very powerful self-reinforcing idea, as Paul Haggis mm -hmm. talks about it. So it is hard to get through to members. And, and even you know, some of the celebrities who have come out against the film, notably John Travolta and also, um, who's the guy from the 70s show? Danny Masterson, I think. Both said, it's a terrible film. I haven't seen it, but it's a terrible film. <laughs> so that sums it all up. Um, I, I understand there's some kind of an initiative now to get the government to reconsider the tax issue. How serious do you, th you think that is? And you know, right now it's it's just a you, you can go online and you can sign up a, a petition, which would be submitted to the White House to revoke the tax exemption. I do find it appalling that, in effect, we all subsidize the Church of Scientology, but I do try to make it clear that it's not because. Scientology is a wacky or bad religion. It's simply that it commits human rights abuses that should not be sanctioned by our tax code. And so we're trying to get the attention of both the IRS and the various subcommittees in the, in the House and the Senate to, to pay attention to this. There is precedent for it. I think the, the IRS revokes 
maybe about 100 tax exemptions a year. But when it comes to religion, you know, it's kind of like a third rail. Nobody yeah. wants to interfere. Larry talks about how the IRS shouldn't, you know, they're not theologians. That's true. Yeah, I did find it interesting in looking up on the IRS website. You and I could start a religion tomorrow and we could take a tax exemption. There's no ban against that, but the IRS might come down on you on a future date and say, Betsy and Alex, the Betsy and Alex religion is no longer. Right, we haven't been practicing it right. faithfully, faithfully enough. Faithfully enough, yeah. <laughs> right. The First Amendment is a powerful thing, and the Church of Scientology relies on that to a great extent, but uh, it turns out the First Amendment swings both ways. I probably shouldn't complain about reviewers, but a number of reviewers said it's just a boring structure in which it just starts at the beginning of the church and goes to the end. It's really not true. The tricky part about the structure was how to follow the individual stories in such a way so that you touch on certain key moments in the church and come back around to these individual stories in ways that seem appropriate and right. Uh, and that was very hard to get right because um, the different parts of people's stories had to fit within the larger story of the Church of Scientology, and it took us a long time to kind of fit those pieces together in a way that seemed to make sense both emotionally and intellectually. Initially, it started off very differently than it ended up. Initially, it was going to be much more directly about, you know, abuses. Uh, and over time, it became much more about the psychological process of these people as I began to interview them over time and, and slowly go out to them. Uh, you know, I went out to get witnesses. And then as we got a few in the can, the idea for how to structure it became more palpable and apparent. I think that a structure is quite complicated, but seems simple. It's really interesting to hear Alex talk about how he structures his films. Yes, and it's so useful for our documentary students. Here at the Columbia Journalism School, we have a growing documentary class that Betsy West teaches along with Professor June Cross. It's part of the reason why we have our Film Friday screenings. They're usually open to the community and to the public at large. In fact, on Friday, March 25th, we have a, an extra special screening coming up, a departure from the documentary format. Spotlight, you may have heard, it won an Oscar this year, and we're going to have two of the real-life journalists who reported on that incredible story to speak to us after the film screens, Sasha Pfeiffer and Robbie Robinson, who were played by Rachel McAdams and Michael Keaton. And they're coming up to Columbia on March 25th, along with Spotlight. It's going to be amazing to hear them talk about it, those reporters from the Boston Globe. That's incredible. For more details about it and other upcoming events, visit our website, onassignmentpodcast.org. And now back to our conversation with director Alex Gibney and Professor Betsy West. What's their reaction been? Um, all the people involved love the film. Marty, they all love it. So they feel I got it right. And I, you know, I think one of the things they were concerned about was that they would come off as lunatics and that, that I wouldn't be able to portray the idea that they were somehow sentient beings and reasonable people who could have been drawn into this. That was their biggest fear and they felt like we got it. The hardest thing I think for them to go back and confront 
because you go through a psychological process. Once you leave, you think of it, oh my God, that was so ridiculous, I can't believe I was there. The hardest thing to get at for most of those folks was the memory of why it was so powerfully alluring to them at the beginning. And that I had to sometimes go over with them again and again and again to get to that place because now they're in a place psychologically where they don't almost want to admit that they went there. But I think I was able in most cases to get them to go there. It's such a hard thing when you do wake up to go, oh my God, because you have this wave of regrets. I just started to think that maybe my entire life has been a lie. You just don't see it happening to you. You justify so much. Cults, they prey on people. What surprised me the most was the tremendous psychological hold that, as, as Jason Begay says, the matrix of thought had on people. And the, the way we learned that um, was a lot of ways, but Marty Rathbun, the former number two guy, would be a classic example. When he spoke to Larry Wright, which is about two years before I spoke to him, he was still one foot in and one foot out of the church and still claimed that he believed in the teachings of L. Ron Hubbard. He just felt that David Miscavige had misled him um, <coughs> and still conducted auditing sessions with an e-meter and so forth and so on. It took Marty a long time to leave, both emotionally and intellectually, that matrix of thought. And so that moment when he's on camera and I said, is there anything that you regret? And he says, he's halting, he pauses, he says, I regret the entire experience. That was actually the first time he said that to anybody. Um, and it's because he, you know, there was a kind of welling up of emotion in him, in him that over time he was willing to relinquish it because it was one of the things that Spanky Taylor says, you know, you come to believe that, oh my God, my entire life has been a lie. It's very difficult for people to reckon with that idea, to think that your whole life has been wasted. It takes a long time to come around to the idea that you've gone through a process, you may have been misled, you know, it doesn't mean the end of your life, it, it, it can be the beginning, but the, the idea that that, that that matrix of thought has such a powerful hold on you that it takes years to get rid of it. That was surprising to me. <laughs> is the film a blow to the Church of Scientology? I, I, I'm told that it is. I'm told that, you know, by sources inside, that they feel that it is a big blow. Uh, and that it is actually managing to reach the small number of still remaining members. How do you uh, calculate the number of members? How did you, you do know, that? There is, a, there is an ex-Scientologist named Jefferson Hawkins who came up with the most reliable number of active members. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Church of Scientology claims over a million actually active members. Uh, they calculate it at some, like, something less than, than 50,000, so it's a pretty small number. But the, the financial assets are high. And actually, the, if you think about it, the, it's a good business strategy. Like, you get fewer and fewer members, you don't have to care for them, and you just keep piling up the dough. For David Miscavige, that must look pretty good. 
but it, it doesn't really look so good to the IRS, I suspect. Have they started to do any kind of good works at all of these, uh, uh, you know, real estate holdings that they have around the world? I mean, it seems well, odd. The, the Church of Scientology yeah. will tell you that they do nothing they do but good, good works. Good works, yes. There is Narconon, their their drug program, <laughs> and of course they're clearing the planet one mm -hmm. person at a time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> will Scientology keep going and going? Scientology <laughs> can keep going and going, um, you know, unless. Um, you know, criminal activities are discovered and prosecuted, and or they lose their tax exemption. I think if they lost their tax exemption, things would come to an end. But, you know, one point that Marty Rathbun makes, which is a quite a powerful point, is that at the end of the day, you know, we can talk about what Congress may or may not do, and God knows talking about Congress doing anything seems such a fruitless exercise. But the process, you know, auditing in reverse, speaking out in public, is quite powerful, and that's one thing, you know, we're all talking about journalism, or we're all talking about filmmaking. Speaking out has an effect, and it spreads, and, it, and it, it's given a lot of ex-Scientologists the strength to break free. Um, it's given some Scientologists the belief that they shouldn't be in the church any longer. For a long time, Scientology did a good job of suppressing speech, and by these courageous ex-Scientologists speaking out, you know, it, it, it's having its own powerful effect that has nothing to do with the IRS or government. Thank you very Delighted. much. Thank you all very Thank much. Thank you so for much. Thank you to Alex Gibney and Betsy West. To read more about Alex, go to our website, onassignmentpodcast.org. Okay, Lisa, before we go, you and I both watched something we really liked over the weekend. Yeah, well, this is the Alex show, so we'll just keep going. And this weekend, I watched the first episode of The New Yorker Presents, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime. And it's Alex Gibney's production company, uh, but he's also farmed out segments to his very high-profile and esteemed filmmaker colleagues. But in the first episode, he himself takes on a piece called The Agent, which is about the internecine warfare between the FBI and CIA that may have led to 9-11 and makes the argument that 9-11 might not have happened if uh, they had been actually speaking to each other more. Yeah, he found some incredible former agents to talk about what had happened, but just gripping interviews. Straight out of central casting. But also makes use of this 2006 article that Lawrence Wright wrote. And so it's all this incredible reporting, and now it's being transferred to a different platform, and it's coming alive visually. Again, I mean, this amazing content across platforms, right? You, you read the article, now you can see it beautifully done on, in video format. And New Yorker also has a great podcast, so it just shows the strength that powerful content has. On our next episode, we'll go on assignment with Joshua Oppenheimer and hear about his incredible Oscar-nominated documentary, The Look of Silence, which is the follow-up to his other Oscar-nominated documentary, The Act of Killing. That's it for this episode. On Assignment is produced by Asta Chaturvedi. Thanks to our funders at the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, to Columbia, and to our beloved fellows Dan Litke, Erica Glass, and Laura Brickman. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. And special thanks to our recording engineer, Shep Burkhan. What's the last great story you watched or heard? Let us know what you think on Twitter at OnAssignmentPod. Or find us individually at Lisa R. Cohen or Abby Wright NY. That's A-B-I. Until next time, everybody. Mm -hmm.